men. So um, just to embarrass everybody, uh, there are a few I know of who have uh, served in uh, armed services and otherwise. And here, could you raise your hands? No, yes. Two back there, three. Really appreciate you guys. Uh, appreciate all that you have sacrificed. I know that, um, you know, oftentimes uh, we only think of those who have uh, served in, you know, actual armed conflict, but um, there's a great deal that uh, is given up to serve others in uh, to have that preparedness and to have that protection and um, we should always be uh, grateful and honor those um, and especially you know I think of the very high degree of suicide that uh, is occurring amongst our veterans and um, just continually pray uh, for them, uh, the Holy Spirit, the peace of mind that is needed. Um, sometimes people take it the wrong way when I say God never designed us to experience those things. You know, that's not a criticism. It's a, it's a gratitude, uh, something that is so grisly that it was never part of God's plan. War, death, all of that carnage and sacrifice and um, most of us get to rest in a peacefulness uh, never having been scarred by that the people who went and served took even that mental strain for us I, I'm, I'm very very grateful and anything we can do to help those who suffer struggle um, interesting um, my Father-in-law um, was in Vietnam, and um, he and I um, had conflicts over the years because um, uh, he's Native American and um, had been recognized by the Seneca tribe as a shaman. And uh, so, you know, as we were having discussions of faith, it was... Uh, Great opposition at times. And this past year, um, he had an experience where the dreams of war were tormenting him and again, you know, all these years later. And um, he, as he explained it to me, in his dream, he remembered uh, that Jesus Christ had promised salvation and he called out to Jesus in the dream and the dream ended and he awoke in a peacefulness and he began developing the practice that in his dream as these things would come upon him he would call out to Jesus just call Jesus name and he would be awakened and you know not have any residual anxiety and uh, it occurred to him that if he could do it in the dream, then he could do it before the dream. And the end result was he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. So when he was very sick months ago and in need of open heart surgery, 
we drove to Georgia, and there in the hospital he was explaining that to us, and he asked if I could baptize him before he went in for open-heart surgery. And all of the medical community said, absolutely not. <laughs> Already got all the tubes and the things in place. Uh, but they allowed us uh, to baptize him in his bed. And we brought in a gallon of water and a whole bunch of towels and just doused him as his profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, he talks to us very frequently now. Someone who uh, gave a great deal, not only in Vietnam, but then upon returning to home in uh, the 60s and 70s in the great opposition to the troops and um, the ridicule and all that was experienced there, sacrifices that we know little of. John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. It's a lot given up by those who serve us, and I am very, very appreciative on this Memorial Day and uh, what the Lord has done. In that, um, Jesus speaks of that sacrifice, and if I sound depressed, I'm not. I'm just, I'm under the weather. Not doing too great, so just um, uh, here doing my best. Uh, so uh, don't think I'm scowling at you or about you or anything like that. I'm just kind of plugging away at um, the uh, the needed feeding that we all need to experience. Jesus is making that statement, John 15, greater love has no man that lay down his life for friend. Um, he's about to lay his life down. He's about to give his life as a sacrifice for everyone that would uh, receive that gift. And, you know, we often talk about the Lord's Prayer. And um, I make the point, it's it's not some hard doctrine sticking point, but when uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer is actually, it's the disciples' prayer, technically, because they ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he says, pray like this. And then we all know our Father who art in heaven. That's an outline. It's really, it's an outline. It's not that we would, you know, pray that in repetition. You know, one, recognize who you're talking to. Two, you know, ask him for, you know, your daily provision, you know, that he would spare you from temptation, that, you know, that all of his will would be done. That's an outline that we should be praying every day. You know, several times a day, probably, uh, we should be in prayer about that. <clears throat> the Lord's Prayer uh, is John chapter 17. And that's where Jesus prays uh, for himself, for his disciples, and for all believers thereafter. It's a remarkable prayer. So so think about this, right? We, we're so uh, encapsulated with, uh, captivated with uh, um, <coughs> People's last words, you know, uh, the uh, different things that we've seen throughout history. This is Jesus encapsulating uh, his thoughts about the entirety of his ministry uh, just before he goes to his death. It's a remarkable uh, prayer that he puts forward. And there's a great deal for us 
to glean from it. So if, if the greatest sacrifice ever made for the human race, made by Jesus, uh, laid down his life for his friends, was made, the things he said in that closing chapter are very significant that we should look at. So John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, um, I uh, find it uh, peculiar how we have adopted all kinds of different uh, methods of prayer and we've codified them. You know, you tell a child that he has to close his eyes and fold his hands and bow his head in order to pray. And, you know, mostly that has to do with uh, stop touching, you know, the person next to you and close your eyes and stop looking around the room and, uh, you know, assume a solemn position so that uh, you are concentrated on prayer. Jesus always lifted his eyes toward heaven, right? Uh, even... I believe that was part of the recognition of Jesus by the two on the road uh, to Emmaus, that he broke the bread and lifted it up and prayed toward heaven. Uh, you know, you, you can pray as you're driving down the road. It's much better not to close your eyes in those moments. So, uh, you know, don't, don't, the point I'm trying to make is don't think like I need to be in a special place. I need to be in a special posture. Uh, you can develop that conversational relationship with God. It is a a, a, uh, a life of prayer when we function that way. Here, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. A remarkable thing. He's glorifying the Lord in his death. We often think of you know, the monument that is built, the ceremony that is conducted, the thing that draws everyone's attention that is glorious as being the glorification. And here, Jesus is saying, I'm glorifying you in my death. Guess what? If Jesus glorified the Father in his death, the best way for you to glorify the Father is in your death. Daily, taking up your cross and serving him, you know, crucifying the appetites of the flesh, putting to death the desires that are so sinful, glorifying the Lord in death, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So through this process, eternal life is coming, substitutionary atonement, it's the entire theme of the Bible. begins immediately in Genesis, shortly after creation, fall of humanity as they disobey God and plunge into sin. Uh, in their dying spiritually, they eventually die physically. Uh, in dying, you will die, was what the Lord had uh, predicted over them. From that point forward, both God and humanity are going through great efforts to try and restore that relationship, the, the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God, right? That, that walking with him in the cool of the day, that closeness that was, you know, touchable. It, it was tangible uh, to them. You know, as you're sitting here right now, <clears throat> I would imagine that it's not hard for us to each long for that, that we want the depth for, for 
however deep your relationship with the Lord is, I'm sure you would much prefer that he showed up at your house every day. That you got to talk with him, that he, he would hold your hand, that he would put his hand upon you and give you that great comfort, that interaction. Right. When we say atonement, right, we're once again, class, uh, you know, the compound word is at one meant. That's what God is trying to do. That's what humanity is trying to do is reestablish a connection with God that makes us at one with him. Only Jesus Christ's sacrifice can do that. That's it. Right. Why? Because sin demands the punishment of death. Even the most minor infraction, right? Uh, no impurity can dwell in the presence of the Lord. We see Lucifer enter the presence of the Lord, but he doesn't get to stay there. He has to leave. Nothing can dwell in the presence of the Lord that is sinful. Uh, so we have to have the protective barrier of Jesus Christ's perfection. His shed blood cleansing us of our Imperfection. So he's providing that through his sacrifice. Now, uh, as many as you have given him, and then oh, the debate begins. The Armenians all cluster up on one side, and the Calvinists all cluster up on the other side, and you know, throw rocks at one another about who's right. You know, is it eternal security, or could I lose my salvation? You know, is it the tulip or do I have some other option or belief system? And the answer is both. Eternal security is real. Right? But you can't, you can't just say, well, I prayed a prayer somewhere. You know, I was in Sunday school, raised my hand, signed the card. Now I'm a Christian, and that's why I just live however I want to. There has to be a changed life. As evidence, right? It doesn't provide us with salvation. It's the result of salvation. You've been saved by Jesus Christ. My illustration within this is if you have, you know, kidney failure and I give you one of my kidney kidneys and when you've recovered, I see you and you're just getting blasted out of your mind on alcohol, abusing the kidney, the liver, whatever's been donated, you know, it, destroying what the life that has been sacrificed and given to you. It's much bigger than that. We're talking about the pure eternal life of Jesus Christ imparted to the immortal. We, we were going to die and we were destined for hell. He relieved us of that punishment. And now what? Abuse it? No. Gratitude should be the natural result. Loving gratitude of obedience is what should be the case. And, you know, this debate about, you know, as many as you'd given him, so is that just the elect? Uh, the, the Calvinistic brothers want to say that, you know, God created a select group of people. They're the only ones saved. Everyone else is going to hell, and that's the way God intended it. Well, uh, proof text, just a couple, so we understand. First John chapter 2, verse 2 says he himself, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation, payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You know, John MacArthur and the five-point Calvinists who are so hardcore say, no, Jesus didn't pay for the unsaved. No, according to the scripture, he did pay for the unsaved. 
According to Peter, he even paid the price for the false teachers. That's remarkable, right? Because they're destined for outer darkness with the devil and his angels. Here's the issue. God paid the price. Everyone has that opportunity. It's many don't cash the check. They don't take advantage of what Christ has provided. Not 1 John, but just the gospel of John chapter 1, verse 12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You want, you want to be one of the chosen? You want to be one of the elect? Then choose Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. No need to have any more argument or discussion. Verse 3 of John 17, and this is eternal life. This, keeping in mind, right, this is all Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer. This is the Lord's prayer uh, as he's praying to the Father. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know, I immediately think of John, Matthew chapter 7 where the false teachers have been so rebellious to the Lord. But then he closes that by saying that when they enter his presence, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Right? It's in knowing him. They say, we've cast out demons in your name. In other words, we've been more religious than anyone you would know. I mean, do you know anyone who has cast out a demon in, in Jesus' name? You know, only Christians do this, right? Who, who's going to show up and say, I have cast out a demon in Jesus' name, other than a Christian? No one. It's only going to be believers that make such a bold claim. And Jesus says, I don't even know who you are. Uh, if, if you struggle with that, understand, right? As far as we understand, Judas was casting out demons, healing the sick, right? Preaching the gospel. And yet he betrayed Jesus Christ. So what's the difference? It's in the obedience, isn't it? It's in the walking in fellowship with Jesus. Listening to the correction when he says you should not do that, then we have an obligation to stop. When he says you should get up and go do that, then we have an obligation to obey and do what he's called us to do. The church, you guys, you know, all of our quoting what he's talking about this morning, the church falling apart the way it is, is because this, this false doctrine, okay, now let's be clear, uh, eternal security is a real thing, but there is a false doctrine within Christianity of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. That says, oh, just pray the prayer. You're good, right? It's like a rubber stamp. Christian, Christian. You have to know Jesus Christ to the point where you're obeying him. If you're not, then you need to be fearful and wonder whether you know him at all. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I've literally heard people say, oh, I just don't like this whole concept of fearing God. Well, then you're clearly outside the realm of where you should be. You know, the reverential fear of God is where it all begins. Having that sense of impending judgment, you know, those who know you. So it continues in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you had given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is God. Pre-existence is what's being said there. Eternal existence in nature. Glorify me with the the glory I had before when I was in your presence. Jesus is the only one that has been sent from the presence of God. There is a false understanding of human existence that says, oh, well, our spirits existed somewhere else and were sent here. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical. You know, Eastern mysticism teaches this, Buddhism, Hinduism, right? The pool of souls, you know, being sent here to go through different cycles of samsara until we finally, you know, are so enlightened that we depart from here and enter nirvana, become part of the collective consciousness, the collective soul of God. We're we're joined to God in eternity. We didn't exist prior to being born. We were brought into existence here. Jesus is the only one that pre-existed and came here. That's what, When he's saying, I'm the only one that pre-existed, I came here to reveal the Father to you. What he's saying is, as God, I've come here to show you and teach you God. Uh, so this high priestly prayer, you know, glorify me uh, with the glory which, you ha- which I had with you before the world was. Verse 6. I have manifested your name. I have made your name known and understood. I have presented your name publicly for people to see and understand. Uh, Specifically, his name is Yeshua. Uh, We bring it through, uh, you know, uh, Greek into uh, Latin and, and German and then into English, and you end up with Jesus as the interpretation. Directly from Uh, The uh, Greek language, uh, Hebrew origin, uh, spoken in Israel even to this day, uh, bring it directly into English and you get Yeshua, okay? Yahweh, God the Father's name, compound word with salvation. Yahweh's salvation. That's who Jesus is. He's making the presentation, right? And it isn't just if I walk around saying that, you know, have my name t- changed to Jesus or Yeshua. It's pretty meaningless, right? I might be able to preach and share with people, you know, with my mouth, the things of God. Jesus is literally saving people. He's giving them their sight. He's, you know, 1,500 years the law is on the books uh, that if a leper is cleansed, what they're supposed to go through with the priests in order to be ceremonial cleansed so that they can read. And it hasn't been used once. The ceremony of cleansing a leper has not been used once until Jesus arrives, heals the leper, and sends them to the priest as a testimony of himself. He's taking away the death from amongst the people. I have made known your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, past tense, prior to, pre-existence. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. 
the words. They have obeyed the words which you have, uh, I have given them. They have kept your word. Uh, surely that I came forth from you. I was in God. I was with God. And I came and lived amongst them. It's a remarkable thing to consider that Jesus ties this manifesting of his name up with the fact that they obey. They keep his word and that that all is a result of he having come from God. Uh, think about uh, how many cults and false leaders and false teachers we've seen come along the way and make great declarations about themselves. And then what do we find out? Uh, the people that they're leading are actually very often way more sinful than even just the average person. Right? They're abusing one another. They're taking advantage of one another. I, I point this out all the time about the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Right? You see them all business-like, squeaky clean, come to you. That's some of the most dangerous people you'll ever encounter. Okay, I'm not just talking about their false teachings, which I could go on you know, for the rest of the day, literally, about. I'm talking about the fact that here is a person who has an ultra-legalistic point of view about their religion, who's trying to ensnare usually only a new believer, right? The lost, they don't care about, right? Because they're all on Satan's team. So they aren't targeting the lost. Rarely, incredibly rarely, does that occur. You know, some things to think about. They they almost always go to new Christians. That's you know, like supernaturally. They got a buzzer in their office or something. Somebody just accepted Jesus. Address comes out. They go right to their place. I say this to people and they're like, oh, he's just exaggerating. Then they show up next week like, you won't believe what happened. There's a Mormon on my doorstep when I got home. Yeah, exactly. Right? Because it is supernatural, but it's not of the Lord. It's demonic. Okay? You need to study a little bit about what goes on inside their cults and inside their circles. Some of the highest levels of child molestation and child pornography production in those circles in the world. So destructive. So why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit, right? They have, their religion is false. They're, they're, they're as wicked as anything you've ever seen. When they show up at my house, I throw them off my property immediately. Boisterously, I throw them off my property. What? No, not because that's my mindset, because John told us that if you welcome them into your home, welcome them onto your property, you're sharing in their guilt and their condemnation. No thank you. Do not even greet them, he says. Okay, They can be saved, and the Lord will show you when to minister to them. But I always make it very clear, they need to get off my property. Why? Because I'm a pastor, and you're serving my enemy. Oh, and then they begin to spout at me about what a terrible Christian I am. Like they know what that means. Right? The, the Lord, Jesus Christ, came forth from God to present to humanity who God was to help them and to teach them to keep God's word. 
the false teachers don't do that at all. They destroy people's lives. Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me that they are yours. I don't pray for the world. That's Jesus saying that. I pray for those who are being saved. If someone's going to reject your faith, and Jesus told his apostles, if you go into a home, you go into a community, they reject your faith, then shake the dust off your clothes and leave. Okay? That was a public presentation that the Jewish leaders did when they would depart from Israel. They would stop at the border before leaving and they would shake out all their garments so that the dust of Israel would remain in Israel. Wipe off their sandals. It was all ceremony. So when they would return, they would stop at the border again, do the same thing. The filthy Gentile dust was not worthy of entering Israel. Shake all the dust out of their clothes, wipe off their feet. Right? Somewhat hypocritical. But there is a precept in it that Jesus moves over in a righteous way to believers and says, if you're preaching, sharing, trying to win people over, they don't accept what you have to say, brush it off. Move on. Right? How many times did Jesus say, this message is for him who has ears to hear? Right? Or read through the book of Revelation. You know, the Spirit speaks to him who has ears to hear. If you're going to listen, you're going to pay attention, right? Even if it's a struggle, if you're going to focus and learn and grow, then great. You're going to reject it? Well, then we'll see you when you're ready to receive. You don't want to receive? God isn't going to force anyone to accept. So in that concept, John chapter 3, we often you know, quote 3.16. If you pick up at John 3 verse 17, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the, the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You're not going to accept Jesus Christ, then you're condemned already. If, if you will embrace Jesus Christ, then you'll be saved from that darkness and from your sins. The condemnation is we, we love our sin. That's, that's my condemnation. That's your condemnation. The freedom, the deliverance is that Christ can cleanse us of even that sinful desire. The guilt of the sin that results and the desire. Right? There, we've talked about it many times. There are two things that cause us to sin. And that is desire and opportunity. And we should look to block both things. Right? You know? You should, you know, not work in the pharmacy if you have, you know, a big problem with prescription drugs. Right? If you have a strong desire to pop pills, you should not be selling them. You know, it's pretty simple. Your desire and your opportunity should not be coupled together. I've talked to many men who struggle with uh, pornography and they work in the computer technologies. Like, yeah, I hate to say it. And as much as you are dependent upon that income, you need a different, you need a different career. 
You can't, you can't work in this environment. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your family and your circumstances. Uh, the Lord will take care of you and sustain you if you'll trust him and depart from these things. Loving the darkness rather than the light. Stepping forward and saying, I have a very perverted heart and I need to get free of this. That's the only way that works. That's the only way that works. When we confess and forsake. So many people think that, oh, well, I confessed it. Yeah, but you're continuing to do it. You have to forsake it. You have to leave it. Jesus, This is Jesus' prayer, right, that we would all come out of these things. 17.10. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name, those whom you have given me. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says that it's better that he leave so that he could send the Holy Spirit to us. Right? Uh, you know, his being uh, on earth, even now, if Jesus' ministry had never stopped and he was always in one location, then you'd have to travel to Jesus to experience Jesus, wherever he was. And he departs and disperses, pours out his Holy Spirit on all of humanity that would accept him. We get to have that leading. We get to have that guidance internally speaking to us, ministering to us, causing us to grow. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Uh, one in the same. You know, I, uh, I had a thing years ago where a young person that we had been ministering to discipling got in a whole bunch of trouble stole a bunch of stuff and uh, I mean a lot of stuff got a lot of trouble and uh, as we were being pulled into that to help with the situation this plea comes forward of isn't there some way Basically, what they're saying, that we could just brush this under the carpet. And I'm saying, well, you know, I appreciate your thought and your desire, but two things. One, what you've done is break the law. So you're going to have to suffer the consequences of that. And two, it's only in experiencing these things that we are broken and we change. I, I try to relay this especially to parents of prodigals all the time. Oh, my son's living in sin. Oh, my daughter's out being very rebellious. And what am I ever going to do? And they constantly interfere with what God is trying to do in their life. Read the life of the prodigal again, right? Uh, pain, embarrassment, and want are the three things that drive the prodigal child back to their father. So what do we do as parents of prodigals? We try to interfere constantly with the pain. We try to soothe and comfort and heal and take the embarrassment. We try to cover up, keep it quiet, don't tell anybody. The want. Oh man, they're broke. They're about to get evicted. I'll pay one more month, but this is the last time. You know. Well, how about you make the last time this time? Let them experience the want, right? They need to run back to their heavenly father. 
right? And it isn't that they go home and dad bails them out one more time. It's a matter of they show up saying, I'm a filthy, rotten sinner. I have wasted the inheritance that you give me, and I'm not even worthy to be called a servant in your household. Brokenness and humility, right? The broken and contrite heart God will not despise, right? Uh, Confess and forsake making the statement with your mouth and departing from these things. Is it an iceberg in here? Are you guys freezing? So so I just saw somebody trying to build a fire there in the back. Let's see if I... I'll I'll make it as cold as I can. Hang on. Let's see what this does. We'll see how that treats you. All right. Um... You just need one of these, and you can run it from there. Anyway, imagine if I gave everybody the password. <sighs> so uh, so uh, these things that he's uh, saying here, uh, it would be better that he send the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, uh, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not. Of the world, I had an interesting conversation with a gal that used to attend here, and um, <clears throat> she grew up in a family of profound heathens. Okay, I mean I'll, I'll, that's pretty much all of our families, but I, these people were especially wicked, and um, she she was abused and mocked and beaten from her childhood. And she, it was very perplexing later years. She went and tried to seek help over the whole issue of why, why did this family treat me this way, right? Well, in that, as a child, she began to look for God. And she ended up in a Sunday school, and she ended up surrendering her life to Christ, and eventually in her teen years attending youth group and growing as a Christian and going on uh, mission trips. Her family hated her, hated her. And even now as an adult, many of them have passed away, malicious, vicious things done to her throughout her whole life. And she was sitting in a service here. I didn't dwell on it particularly. The Lord spoke to her heart. I I was just sharing the word. And she came to me afterwards and said, I realized as you were teaching this morning that uh, I was a child of God before the foundations of the world. So when I came into this family, they were all of the world and of the devil. And so even as a child, they hated me. I was a spiritual witness of hatred. She's walked with Christ all of her life. It's an interesting concept. You know, predestination, saved before the foundations of the world. She could see it very clearly here that morning and understood that her family hated her because they were of the devil and she was of the Lord. She had surrendered her life on her own. So, you know, and when here we're reading uh, the world has hated them because they were not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This There is this massive movement. You've heard me talk about it a hundred different ways. You know, the whole idea of creating the seeker-friendly church. Let's just make the cool church 
where everybody likes us and the world likes us. I could invite the worldly, ungodly people into our church and they'd have as good a time as they would, you know, in their nightclub or anywhere else. They wouldn't even notice the difference. They're trying to befriend the world. James sternly rebukes the church, calling people that do that adulterers and adulteresses. Friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. The world is going to hate us for our faith, right? It's easy to make people hate you. I'm not encouraging you to just go out and be a jerk. Anybody can do that. It's the issue of our faith. Uh, They're going to hate you for your faith. And you need to be prepared for that. If you're always trying to smooth over, make it good, win the world, your heart is corrupt. That is not what Christ has called us to. The world has hated them because they were not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, right? So uh, just to have uh, two points of discussion here. Uh, First one is that sanctification is positional in that Christ has cleansed us by his blood. So we are already, according to the scripture, we are already sanctified. In Christ, we are sanctified. We are we're saved. We're delivered from the filth of the world. And in fact, according to the scripture, we're already glorified in Christ. There is also a sanctification process that goes on, right? A growth and maturity. If you just rest in that position, I'm already sanctified. Read it right there. says I'm already sanctified. Don't have to do a blessed thing. Okay, well, uh, you're missing half of the process, right? There is growth and maturity and cleansing that needs to take place. And listen, it, it isn't even the devil who whispers in your ear and says, just be content in the filth in the place you are. No, no, that's my flesh that whispers that, screams that in my ear. You know, don't worry about it. Stay where you are. You're comfortable here. Nothing to change, you know. Just dwell in your filth and in your sin. That's exactly what my flesh would love to do, right? The the problem with it is, hear me, right? The problem with it is it doesn't just stay there, does it, right? The little leaven leavens the whole lump. The deterioration is complete. Don't believe me. No show of hands, right? But don't believe me. There are many of us in this room that can tell you. What happens when you try to stagnate? You're either moving forward or backsliding. And that's all there is. There's either forward progress and growth and maturity and cleansing that is taking place in your life, or you're worse off than you were yesterday and the day before and the day before that. Deterioration. Uh, Listen, here's the encouragement. It is possible. (laughs) Right? Because the struggle with the flesh can lead us to believe at times it's impossible. I've come at this from every angle. I'm never going to change. Well, have you let the Holy Spirit come at it from his angle? Have you let him be victorious and you just follow through? We were traveling recently and uh, 
There's a group of guys, Philadelphia, and it's just massive traffic all around us. And uh, I think we're in Connecticut at that point, and we hear the cop car coming. And everybody's like forcing off the road, getting out of the way, and I'm trying to convince John, just fall in behind him. <laughs> he's not speeding. He's not, he's not violating anything. Just get behind him, and we'll just follow him right through. The hole's just opening up, you know what I'm saying? Everything's like a four-lane parking lot, and we can just follow that guy. The Holy Spirit. Right? You can try to weave your way through the junk. Try to figure out your path. Try to fight. Take your steps. You know, do whatever you're doing. Or you can become sensitive to the Holy Spirit and see where he's leading and follow that. It requires obedience. Don't touch that. Do touch this. <laughs> Read this. Eat this. You know, follow this. Lead this. Sing this. You'll hear a lot of things as the Holy Spirit just directs his way through all of the conflict. So it is with us. This challenge that we have. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself that they may also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus, Jesus sanctified himself. Why did Jesus have to sanctify himself? Was Jesus filthy? Absolutely not. Sanctified himself. To be of singular purpose. To set aside in holiness for the Lord. Right? You know what this is in an earthly sense. You know, you're about to have surgery. You do not want the doctor to uh, you know, come into your room uh, cutting his steak with a scalpel that he's going to be using on your knee. You know what I'm saying? You want the tools he's going to use in that setting to be sanctified for the purpose of operating on you, right? You don't you want him, you know, digging underneath his fingernails, you know, cleaning out, getting ready, and just he's going to go in and do surgery on you. I'll just use a scalpel. It's multi-purpose. It has one purpose, and that's what it needs to be used for. Christ sanctified himself for the purposes of God as an example to us. That we could recognize the need to do the same things ourselves. You know, I've shared before that when I first got married, I received very stern lessons from my wife about how her butter knives were not my screwdrivers. News to me, man. You know what I'm saying? I just... They had always worked fine on screws previously. And in fact, they work very well now. But she's right in my face with one from her set showing me how I have bent the end. And I'm saying, I'll flatten it with a hammer. And she's saying, I'll flatten you with a hammer. You know, she's taking me to the toolbox and saying, you have tools right here. They have a purpose. These have a purpose. They are not crossover. Those are sanctified for working on junk. This is sanctified for eating with. Don't intermingle them. This is what Christ is saying to us. By his example, he sanctified himself for the purposes that God had given him. And, and by example, he's saying to us, and you must sanctify yourself for my purposes. No other. 
This is what Christ has called us to in this filthy, rotten world. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. Oh, hey, that's us. Now we get right down to the us prayer, right? He prayed for himself, and then he prayed for his disciples, and now he's praying for us. Oh, I'm infatuated with these last verses. This is Jesus. This is the Lord's prayer for me. Isn't it a blessing when people pray for you? Right? Especially when you really want it. You're in deep need and you reach out and say, I'm in trouble here, man. My health is shot. I need prayer. You know, my marriage is shot. I need prayer. My finances are a disaster. I need prayer. And people pray. And when you hear things in the prayer that you know are prophetic, you're like, how could they have known to pray that? How could they know the distress in my heart that way? And you understand that the Holy Spirit is ministering to you through them. That's a wonderful thing. That's what we see right here. Jesus is praying for us. It's an amazing, remarkable thing. I do not pray for those alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, listen, that they all may be one it does not mean uniformity, okay? The cults have this mindset, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, Bali, all the different, whatever you follow. Uniformity. Everyone must think, act, talk, believe the same way. Unity is not uniformity, right? We all go out to eat together. We go into a restaurant and just take over the place. We're all going to order something different. We're all there together, right? We're unified together in having a meal, sharing a meal, even going to the same place. But we don't all order the same thing, right? We are unified, yet not uniform. It's important that you understand that. The more, the more someone is trying to make Christianity uniform, probably the farther you want to get away from that. Hey, they've got a sense of legalism and pride and arrogance that is saying, I have discovered the only way. I alone am right and everyone should follow me. That's going to result in bad things. It's going to result in bad things. We each have a significance. There are those things which uh, we can't argue about, right? I mean, Jesus is God. That, that's foundational. Right? The Trinity is foundational. Baptism, communion, foundational. Jesus Christ, death at the cross, the only son. Virgin birth, right? Death, burial, resurrection, ascension, return. These are essential things that we must hold to, Right? But if we start telling you what your uniform is to wear to church, you know, the way you should dress, you know, even if we say, like, you can only wear, you know, jeans, or you can't wear jeans, or you must wear a suit, or you can only wear, uh, you know, a dress, ladies, or you know, we start saying things that are controlling in that way, that's not what Christ has called us to at all. Not, not at all. 
We want to be very careful about that mindset and following anyone that thinks that way. So we are all to be uh, one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect. Now, don't let yourself be derailed there. In an arrogance or in a discouragement, it simply means, from the, the Greek language, a completeness. You know, there was something lacking in your life before you surrendered your life to Christ. And now that has been added and you are complete. Uh, the, the real perfection uh, of flawlessness that we think of will not occur until we are in his presence. We have a completeness now in our relationship with Christ. So perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. So the, the unity that's being described here, especially in belief, is the thing that needs to be convincing to the world. Um, you know, we talk about certain things and the divisions in the church. There are those with this idea of unification that want to say, well, we have to all believe the same thing. And in that process, they they insist essentially that there should not be ever be any um, arguments amongst us. Paul very clearly states Corinthians that there must be arguments amongst us to prove who is correct, which says someone is going to be correct and someone is going to be incorrect, right? So, well, how do we verify that? You don't really have to think about it very long. The word of God. That's, that's what Jesus is saying right here. We have to compare all of these things against the word. What are we going to be unified with? Well, we're going to be unified with Christ first, right? We're going to be bound to him. How? Through his word. He's already described it here in this passage. And as we are, we will then be bound to other Christians. I'm sure, right, you've been to other churches of other denominations and they think very differently than you do on certain points. But as soon as you walk in, you have that great sense of family. That great sense. I mean, you've been in other ones where you walk in, they think very differently, and you have that great sense of division. Like, I do not belong here. I am not comfortable here. This message is incorrect. I need to get my junk, and I need to leave. That does happen. And that does need to happen so that we will be bound together with those who are correct. You know, uh, the travels we've been through uh, recently, been in a handful of other churches and found great fellowship with all. Very different, very, very different than us. And yet great fellowship with them. They're excited about us and what the Lord is doing and encouraging in all uh, you know, thoughts and us with them. We don't have to have the same mind, but that, that thing that comes from knowing the word and knowing the spirit. And you get into certain companies and you're thinking, this does not line up with what I know at all. 
Uh, I've said to you many times, forgive me for my repetition, right? Bank tellers are the ones that find uh, counterfeits more frequently than anyone else. And it is not because of their training to identify counterfeits. Well, it is. But in that they tell them, we're not going to give you all these lessons on counterfeits. What you're going to do is you're going to handle money all day long. And if it doesn't feel right, then you put it under closer examination. You use the pen, you use the light, you use the different examinations. It's in the feel of the genuine that you discover the counterfeit. So you must handle the word of God. You must handle proper fellowship. You must handle things that are in a proper setting to the point where you're extremely comfortable with that. And when the counterfeit passes across your experience, uh, all of your alarms go off. Something's wrong here. Don't really know. Can't really identify it. Maybe I don't even need to identify it. All I need to do is reject it. Right? So I don't have this worthless thing in my life. Uh, my, my wife and I, I, early on in my walk with the Lord, the Jehovah's Witnesses talked about them several times now this morning, but they got a hold of me. I spent a year with them. My wife was about two weeks. I was over a year. Two weeks in, right? She barely knows the Lord, says, nope, they're full of it. Done. And I'm like, how do you know? And she's just like, I know in my heart. I know this is wrong. I have to like get the microscope out and examine every nuance for you know a whole year. And then, then all that does is free me from meeting with them. Then I have to spend another year dissecting all of their history and all of their junk, and you know, which I guess is helpful to me and you and the body of Christ. But, but in the end, right, how much better to trust what the Holy Spirit is saying to your heart and what the Word of God says and understand when you are being led into unity versus being expelled from unifying with someone. So here in this whole thing, that's how we will know the love of the Lord. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am. Now that is the longing of your heart. To be with the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundations of the world. O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. John chapter 14, verse 3 says, I go to prepare a place for you. You've heard that a million times. And it is a new body that he's preparing for you, right? The mansion that we often refer to is the fact that your spirit is presently dwelling in this body, which the scripture repeatedly refers to as a tent, a temporary dwelling place. There is a coming day where this body will be used to create the new body that you will dwell in eternally. And it will be glorified in the way that Jesus Christ's body was glorified. And a lot of the longing and a lot of the heartache and a lot of the struggle. Look, if you're thinking like, right, I want to look like, you know, I don't know, some, you know, fantastic human being. How about this? 
your body will not desire sin. Just that. Really, who cares what it looks like at that point? As long as, right, the curse of sin and death, the corruption, the decay, the rot, the breaking down, that will all be done away with. Yes, you will have a glorified body in that sense, but much more significantly that your flesh will not have the propensity to sin. You know, I have to wake up in the morning and immediately pray. Immediately, as soon as I come to consciousness, I've learned that the enemy is lurking. I give him one moment. I get up out of bed and go get a coffee. And before I come back, you know, I have a whole death plot in my mind for everyone. <laughs> you know. Not really, but it is a sense of that which I desire is death. It's destructive. It's selfish. That will destroy my day. That is death to my marriage, death to my ministry, death to my work. Me being present. First thing that needs to happen is Will needs to die as soon as he awakens every day. He needs to succumb to the word of God, succumb to the Holy Spirit. Find myself in obedience to the Lord. The newness of what Christ has for us, Lord. You guys, if you don't have Behold Israel uh, on your computer or on your phone, the application, Amir Sarfati, I would strongly encourage you to get that. The things that are developing right now around the world, it's just, I mean, preachers, you know, we've been saying that for, well, millennia. But here's the issue, you guys. We're in the final seconds of humanity, right? Hey, you know, we hear the apostles telling us last days. We hear Jesus talking about his final hours. We are ticking down. The things you see going on all around you, uh, this is this is what the Lord wants. You guys, you know, the whole conspiracy, Joe Biden, the voting booths, the blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, how about this concept? Uh, we have the leader that the Lord wants us to have. Does that sting? Right? Because if we were truly repentant, repentant, you know, I said all along the way, love Donald Trump. I said all along the way, right? There's too much focus on prosperity. Right? Not enough, maybe no focus on Jesus Christ. Where's Jesus Christ? That's what's going to save us from this miserable, wretched thing. And you guys, without repentance, the Lord is just going to continue to allow. Right? You know, people are going, 2024. Oh, I hope so. As I'm looking at it right now, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not saying that as a naysayer. I'm saying that as I don't see this nation repenting. Oh, well, we just Roe versus Wade. Did you see this nation's reaction? It wasn't warm, wasn't embracing, it wasn't fearful, it wasn't repentant. We can be the remnant, always. We are in a war. Memorial Day, again, the sacrifice of those who have provided us with this freedom. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So grateful.
so grateful. May we live as grateful people. Hearts surrendered to Jesus Christ, bowing in worship and obedience. You alone know what that means to you. I know what that means to me, to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. I pray that all of us would and that we would share it with the world. So that's the time we have, more than the time we have. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. And then please stay and fellowship as long as you want to. I know that uh, there's a whole bunch of food that's going to come out and we'll be able to sit around and enjoy one another's company. So, Father, we thank you for your love and your graciousness in our lives. And we ask that you would minister to us, help us to be men and women that are surrendered to you, that are sanctifying ourselves for your purposes, Lord that are truly setting ourselves aside for your desires, your wishes, your will, your kingdom. Minister to us this morning. Help us to be unified with one another, that we would be bound together in your spirit, brotherly love, knowing one another uh, all the better for having spent this time with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.